You're listening to episode 72 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn. Our guest today is Terence Wood. Terence is a research fellow at the Development Policy Centre at the Australian National University. Terence undertakes research on Australia and New Zealand's aid programs, in particular the domestic political economy of aid. He also undertakes research on Melanesian politics with a focus on the Solomon Islands. We recorded this episode in late February before COVID-19 was declared a pandemic and before mass unemployment began in Australia. So naturally, the context in which we had this conversation six weeks ago is very different to the context we find ourselves in today. Nonetheless, we addressed some topical issues, including the effectiveness of aid in the Pacific versus in the rest of the world, and why many donors and NGOs find working in the Pacific more difficult than working in other regions. We also discussed Terence's view that the main motivator behind Australia's focus in the Pacific is the rising influence of China, and whether it's reasonable that aid to the Pacific is being delivered at the expense of aid to other places. We also discuss whether we need to worry about our comparative advantage or our unique brand of aid rather than focusing now on what and where the greatest need is. It's an interesting paradigm shift for us all to consider. We also discuss Terence's work tracking Australian government aid transparency, as well as a discussion of gender and diversity on NGO boards in Australia. Lastly, Terence tells us about his work in the Solomon Islands and broadly the impacts of poor governance and whether aid can actually fix it. Terence's work features prominently on the Dev Policy blog. On March 30, he wrote an article on what COVID-19 will mean for the Pacific. Because this episode was recorded six weeks ago and so doesn't address COVID-19, I'll share an excerpt of that article with you here. Terence asks the question, will health systems in the Pacific cope if the virus spreads significantly? He states, In countries like PNG and the Solomon Islands, the simple answer to this question is that the health service is in no state to respond. There are many problems, including an acute shortage of intensive care beds. This will likely lead to increased mortality rates. The situation is better in countries like Fiji, but still not so good as to be fit for a major epidemic. It's unlikely intensive care capacity can be rectified in a hurry. Other issues might be, though, lack of quarantine in hospitals, poor general hygiene and insufficient personal protective equipment for staff are problems in places. Hopefully, they can be swiftly addressed. Terence goes on to say, Beyond tourism, most Pacific countries are thoroughly embedded in the global economy. Although the World Bank lacks data for PNG and Fiji, in all the Pacific countries that it does have data for, imports and exports are a larger share of GDP than in Australia and New Zealand. Imports, in particular, are a very large share of GDP in most Pacific countries. Slowing trade, not to mention potential disruptions to trade routes, will hurt most Pacific economies. Some of the hurt will be cushioned by remittances, but remittances themselves will almost certainly be reduced owing to economic circumstances in countries like New Zealand. Some economic consequences will also be cushioned by community social safety nets and by people's ability to grow their own food. But this shouldn't be overstated. The ability of urban dwellers to grow food will be limited, and they won't be able to buy local produce at markets if they don't have cash. Additional food takes time to grow too and urban residents returning to rural homes may place pressures on available land. You can read the full article on the Dev Policy blog, which I've included a link to in the show notes. 
That's it from me. Enjoy the episode with Terence Wood, Research Fellow at the Development Policy Centre. All right, Terence, thanks for chatting with me. Thank you very much. You've worked for New Zealand Aid, you did your PhD on Pacific politics and elections, and you've been working at the Development Policy Centre on Australian Aid for the last five years. So obviously there's a lot that we can cover and you've got a wealth of experience. I think something that I found particularly interesting to start with is uh, your finding that Australian aid projects to the Pacific are generally less effective than those that we finance in other regions of the world. So how do we know this and why is that the case? One piece of evidence is just simply the uh, perceptions of aid practitioners. I think if you ask many people in the Australian aid community where they thought Australian aid was at its most effective, they would say outside of the Pacific. But we also have more systematic evidence, both in the terms of Australian performance, aid performance reviews, which show that fewer aid objectives are met in Pacific countries on average than elsewhere where Australia gives aid. And then we've also studied effectiveness appraisals of individual Australian aid projects. So 456 aid projects conducted around the world funded by Australian government aid. And on average, they're clearly less effective as appraised, at least in the Pacific, than elsewhere. So taken together, that's a fairly full suite of evidence that suggests that Australian aid isn't doing as well in the Pacific as it is in other parts of the world. Mm. And we know that that trend also appears to be true for donors. So for ADB and the World Bank, it also appears to be true. So does that indicate that the Pacific generally is just a hard region to work in? Yes, comparatively hard, probably much harder, say, than Southeast Asia. We might find parts of sub-Saharan Africa or other parts of the world are harder again still, but compared to the places where most Australian aid goes or most non-Pacific Australian aid goes, the Pacific does seem to be particularly difficult and it's not just an Australian problem. Uh, other donors have the same issue. Do you have a sense of why that is? Is it is it the geographical context? Is it the cultural diversity? That's something that we're still trying to study systematically and we don't yet have a definitive answer. One thing I would say, though, at this point is that the Pacific is both a unique and fairly diverse part of the world. And, and I suspect part of the reason why aid is less effective in the Pacific is that donors just don't invest enough time in learning about the context of Pacific Island countries and also learning from their own aid experiences there. So I suspect it would be a part of the world where aid would really be made considerably better if donors invested a lot in uh, making the art of aid giving a learning enterprise at the same time. So you have made the point that Australia should not continue to grow the share of aid that goes to the Pacific and that's based on the trend that we've observed uh, in recent years that the, the portion of our aid program that goes to the Pacific is increasing and you've suggested that that portion shouldn't continue to grow. So why is that? Two reasons. One, that given that the aid budget itself is essentially static, any growth in the Pacific is going to come at the expense of aid elsewhere, and aid which is perhaps more effective uh, because it's been given in parts of the world which are more conducive to effective aid. But then the other reason, which is by far and away the most important, is it's pretty obvious that the main motivator behind Australia's uh, uh, resumed focus or renewed enthusiasm for giving aid to the Pacific is China. You get the sense that a lot of the new aid to the Pacific will be geostrategically oriented. Uh, and there's one thing we know from the long history of aid giving, uh, including during the Cold War, when aid is motivated by the desire to pursue uh, geopolitical uh, objectives, it 
generally becomes a lot less effective at helping people living in developing countries. First and foremost, I'd be opposed to more aid going to the Pacific because I think Australia's motives are all wrong in that area. Do you think Australia has tried to hide the geostrategic interest behind aid or do you think that whatever level of government that you're engaging with or just generally is is the government quite forthright about the fact that we are doing this because it's in our geostrategic interests in a context where China is an increasingly big player? Yeah, I mean, at times there may be a degree of pretense. Um, uh, if you ever put that question directly to a politician, they might deny the role of China. But I think if you ever got a politician speaking candidly, they'd be fairly open about it. And actually, if you look at the high-level policy statements that are supposed supposed to be guiding Australian aid, they already mention Australia's national interest. So it's not an out-and-out secret, even if it's not something that's necessarily advertised. When you go and look at the aid program's website, it generally talks about how Australia Australian aid is helping the rest of the world, not so much about how it's helping Australia. Yeah, and I guess that raises the interesting question of what is Australia's comparative advantage with aid? And if we weren't guided by geostrategic factors and trying to compete with China, what is the real comparative advantage of Australia? Um, Australia is showing an increased interest in concessional financing, of course, raises concerns around debt sustainability and, and whether that is our best contribution to the region. Where do you stand on that? Speaking first to the original question about comparative advantage, in general, I don't think Australia should be worrying about what its comparative advantage is. First and foremost, it should be worrying about what is most needed in the countries where it's working and what's most likely to be effective. Um, And if the answer to those questions happens to be something that Australia doesn't do well, then it should give the money to someone else to help in those areas, give the money to the World Bank, for example. So I think the idea of focusing aid on your comparative advantage is is something of a sort of mistaken way of thinking about aid. You really need to think about the country context where you're giving aid if you want to maximise its effectiveness. And then in terms of lending or concessional finance, once again, I mean, there's nothing wrong with concessional finance per se, but it seems fairly obvious that Australia's... uh, planned movement into concessional finance in the Pacific is motivated by a desire to reduce Chinese influence. Perhaps more with loans than with aid given as grants, it's really important to get it right and make sure it helps. Because if you give aid as a grant and it's unsuccessful, oh well, the money was wasted, but that's the end of the story. If you give aid as a loan and it doesn't deliver real benefits, then what you've done is left the country with nothing except a pile of debt. So Australia really needs to be careful if it's going to move into that area. I think to your earlier point around the focus not needing to be on comparative advantage, we're of course in the middle of a review of our aid policy and a lot of the discourse around that has focused on what is our unique value add. So if we're not squarely focused on what our comparative advantage is and instead focus on the needs in each individual country, is there a risk of overlap with other countries? How do we ensure that we are still being as efficient as possible? At least if aid were to be given rationally, there wouldn't need to be so much of a worry about risks of overlap. Because for example, if you decided that education was the foremost need in Indonesia and you discovered that the British were the We're already doing a lot of education work in that area. You could perhaps simply uh, channel your aid via the British aid program. Now, in reality, I guess uh, things might be a little bit more complicated than that, but still worthwhile thinking in the first instance. For example, what's most needed here in Papua New Guinea? That's a much better way to pursue fundamental questions about aid giving rather than, oh, what are we best at here in Australia? Which might be winning Commonwealth Games medals, for example, which isn't 
<laughs> so useful <laughs> for Papua New Guinea. <laughs> Very useful. It's a really interesting lens to consider and it makes me wonder if we did make that shift, say, in a country like Papua New Guinea where we went, okay, not so much what's our comparative advantage here, but what is most of need here? How do you think that would change our aid program hypothetically? Well, in the case of Papua New Guinea, it's very hard uh, not to look at the country and, and think about low levels of human development. And I think that might lead the Australian aid program to focusing first and foremost on just pr successfully and effectively providing some, helping to provide some basic services to the people of Papua New Guinea who are really wanting for those services right now. Also, if you were to think carefully about the context of Papua New Guinea, you might sort of interact that thinking with the history of Australian aid giving to the country, and you might say, well, we've struggled over the years to give aid effectively to Papua New Guinea, even when our motivations have been good, even when we're focused on the right sectors. So the other thing we're going to do differently in Papua New Guinea is we're really going to make our aid giving a learning enterprise. We're going to invest a lot in monitoring and evaluation, and we're also going to try and uh, invest in research of a very specific sort, research that is uh, likely to provide tangible knowledge that the aid program can use. And we're going to tolerate higher overheads. We're going to have more staff so that we don't, we're not um, overloading a small group of staff with a very complicated aid program. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I know that you have also um, written a lot recently around how we do need to invest in gold standard evaluation. As you've said there, that we do need to take evaluation really seriously. Yes, and, and it's not to say that Australia is terrible when it comes to evaluating its own aid projects. In fact, uh, thanks in part to the Office of Development Effectiveness, some Australian aid evaluations are actually quite good, um, but there's always room for more improvement. When you really want to be learning in as much detail as possible whether your aid projects are succeeding or not, and also why. What's working, what's not working, and what, what's behind that. You can really make aid giving a learning enterprise, I think. Obviously, you have a lot of involvement with the NGO sector as well. Before we get on to that, I understand you've just completed a transparency audit of Australian aid, which is the third one that the Development Policy Centre has undertaken. Perhaps before kind of sharing with us what the audit came up with, can you explain why transparency matters and why the centre uh, conducts these evaluations? Yeah, sure. And, and, and the reason why transparency is so important in aid is because the people who are most affected either for good or for bad by Australian aid are people living in developing countries, people who have very few avenues to influence Australian aid policy. On the other hand, there's another group of people, uh, people like you and I here in Australia who do have avenues uh, for influencing aid policy. They could be policy dialogues, they could be civil society campaigns, they could just be voting in elections. Uh, but when the aid program isn't transparent, it's very hard for you or I to know exactly what it's doing and whether it's doing that well or not. While transparency isn't a panacea, if you have a transparent aid program, it's much easier for people who are concerned with aid quality here in Australia, the people who have the chance to influence policy, to actually um, make informed judgments about what's going right and what's going wrong. So that's why transparency matters in a nutshell. Yeah, okay. And what, uh, what results came back from the audit? So maybe... Just speaking a bit more broadly than the audit itself, if I were to summarise how the Australian aid program is going when it comes to transparency, I'd say that performance is patchy, uh, which means that there are some areas that are very good 
its provision of uh, historical data on aid spending and its provision of uh, what the so-called orange book of budgeted aid spending on budget night are very good. Um, it does try and conform with some international best practices and it has made a lot more evaluations of its aid projects available online in recent years. So that's real, uh, an area of real improvement. By the same token, other project documentation, which should be there on the website, if uh, an observer is to be afforded any sort of real understanding of what an aid project is doing, is becoming less and less readily available over time. So some good news, some bad news, some areas of improvement, some areas where things are getting worse. As you were talking there, I was thinking about it in the context of uh, all of the sort of misinformation and misunderstanding of our aid program amongst mainstream society. And I'm sure you've seen those surveys that suggest that kind of everyday Australians think we give a much greater percentage of um, our, our, our GDP to aid than what we do. So you know, I think the transparency audit kind of feeds into that as well. Yes, yeah. I mean, there's certainly uh, scope for, for trying to help the average Australian become better informed of um, the nature of Australian aid giving. Although that being said, the transparency audit and very specific aspects of transparency tend to be um, tend to pertain to the types of information that are going to be of most use or interest to people who devote their lives to studying the stuff. Um, or perhaps to informed observers like journalists. Uh, moving on, for the last several years, you've been paying very close attention to the Australian NGO sector. Um, and of course, at the Australasian Aid Conference where we are, there is a lot of representation from the NGO sector um, as, as a really important group that, that shapes our development program. One of your findings has been uh, that there's been a drop in donations from the public to Australian development NGOs for three years in a row now. How big has the reduction been uh, and do you think it's going to continue? So the, the reduction has been marked. If you're working for a large Australian development NGO and the fundraising team, you'd certainly have noticed it. However, it hasn't been catastrophic. And if you look at aid per, uh, donations per capita or donations as a share of the sort of Australian economy, actually Australia is in a slightly better place overall than it was at the turn of the millennium. Donations have gone up overall and Australia has become a slightly more generous country than it was certainly prior to the uh, Indian Ocean tsunami, which really led to an improvement which wasn't immediately reversed. Things are getting a bit worse now, but uh, if you take the long view, uh, they're, they're not as bad as they once were. And I wonder how the summer that we've just had influences some of these statistics. Yeah, yeah, and I'm, I'm starting to look at that because the immediate question is why are donations to NGO aid and development NGOs going down. Um, and I know that part of the reason is that people donate less in uh, tougher economic times. So when the economy is really booming, you find that people's wallets open more readily and donations go up. When the economy is stagnating, it goes down. But another possible explanation is that Australians are starting to think, well, we've got problems here at home. We should give to domestic char charities rather than international organisations. And I've got some data. I am trying to test that hypothesis right now. Unfortunately for you, um, I should have results in about a week. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to get you back on. Yeah, yeah. I've heard the economic argument as well. I think the summer that we've just had proves that people can give a lot of money when they're galvanised to do so. Yeah, and that's certainly true. Once people's attention has been captured by, by 
any sort of disaster, be it the bushfires here at home or the Indian Ocean tsunami, regardless of the sort of economic climate, people um, will become more inclined to give. Um, but those sort of disasters come and go, and so that sort of leads to spikes and drops in donations. It doesn't, um, when we're looking for sort of explanations of longer-term trends, we're having to look at things like the state of the economy, but also perhaps uh, changing attitudes here in Australia and changing perspectives about its, its place in the world and whether people are outward-oriented or inwards-oriented when they think about who they should help. The other area of the NGO sector that you have paid particular attention to is the gender composition of NGO boards and managements. And I think we know generally that female representation on boards and in executive is increasing. Um, what kinds of trends have you observed? Yeah, so uh, if you look at the NGO sector and say compare it with the Australian corporate world or even Australian government departments, already it, it, it has always done quite a lot better and better in terms of the representation of women at a senior level. On the other hand, if you compare representation of women at a senior level in NGOs with the um, share of women who work in NGOs more generally, it hasn't done so good. So at one point in time, I think the, st the statistic was something like 60% of the staff of Australian NGOs were women, but only 30% of the CEOs were. Things are getting better now, and I think for the first time ever uh, last year, more than 50% of Australian NGO CEOs were women. So the trend is definitely of improvement, um, and that's something that I, I, I really think the Australian Council for International Development deserves credit for championing and also um, some of the heads of its board have really made that a sort of cause and tried to shift norms amongst the NGOs, and it seems to be working. It's really quite encouraging. Yeah, and there is increasing evidence emerging that actually demonstrates that boards with greater female representation are more successful boards, and I'm sure the same would be true for executives. Y yes, quite possibly, right? Well, you'd at least like to think we ended up in a state where it was truly meritocratic, so that the best people for the role got chosen regardless of their gender. And once upon a time, when we looked, you know, a few years ago, you'd have to say that the underrepresentation of women would suggest that this situation wasn't meritocratic. Women were being impeded from where they ought to be in these roles. Now, now things are looking better, though. When we talk about the importance of women on, on boards and in leadership teams, it's obviously incredibly important. But is there a danger that by focusing on women, we don't focus enough on broader diversity? And do we have any statistics on uh, diversity uh, in the NGO sector in terms of cultural and, and racial diversity? No, we don't. I should say at the outset, the only reason why we have statistics about gender is because uh, the Australian Council for International Development and its members decided that they wanted to prioritise gathering that information. Um, and I know of other parts of the world uh, that shall remain nameless where this hasn't necessarily happened. To their credit, we at least have some data that are relevant, but we don't have... I, 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 no one has ever thought to ask questions about um, ethnic diversity or, or the like or gather data on those sort of statistics. Um, so no, we don't know. Maybe in the future we will. Maybe people will start asking questions and gathering the data. I, I would think so. And I think the questions that we ask of corporate Australia tend to then influence the questions that we ask of the NGO sector. And certainly the importance of both gender and diversity is um, quite pertinent for the corporate sector at the moment. So I imagine it will flow on to the NGO sector. Yeah, and in a, in a purely um, methodological sense, it would be easy enough to add those questions to surveys 
You don't want to overburden the surveys that ACT asks of its members with thousands of questions, but you could add a couple more and you could gather that information. Now, another area of your research, which again is quite topical at the moment as we're in the midst of an aid policy review, has been in relation to public opinion towards aid um, and also more broadly the political dynamics behind aid decision-making. So if we start with the fact that we know Australian aid has been cut consistently, uh, we know that one of the foundations of this aid review was that there won't be an increase to the aid budget. So when we're all making submissions to that review, it's kind of on the basis of there won't be an increase. Yeah, yeah. Don't ask for more money because you're not going to get it. (laughs) Yeah. So we went into the discussion with that fact kind of already spelled out for us. Um, I mean, should aid campaigners accept that this is the new reality or should we still be campaigning for an increase to our aid budget? And if so, how do we go about that? I think we should certainly be campaigning um, or more broadly engaging in, in a suite of advocacy activities. I mean, campaigning being something you might do with the public, but advocacy being something that you might do with policymakers or politicians. And that's true even though in the short term it seems like it would be very hard to um, bring about increases in the aid budget. But who knows what seeds you're sowing in the long term. So I know that Save the Children, uh, I think in collaboration with other Australian NGOs, has been taking members of parliament to witness aid in action. They typically tend to be more junior members of parliament early on in their careers. But generally, it seems like the responses of those members of parliament to what they see when they see NGO projects in action has been very positive. So I think it's well worth continuing to do that sort of work, even if uh, at a senior level in the coalition government right now, there's no enthusiasm for increasing the aid budget. At least at some point in the future, the seeds that you sow now might well uh, blossom, which is kind of the story in the United Kingdom with the Conservative Party there. A lot of groundwork had been laid before the Conservative Party became more uh, favourable to increased aid volumes. I mean, if we go to the heart of that comment, do we need to increase our aid budget? I think so. There's no uh, shortage of need in the world, uh, no shortage of need in the Pacific. Uh, You can think of all manner of issues uh, that could be assisted with effective aid. And by the same token, I mean, I I often hear Australians say, well, charity begins at home or we should help Australians first. But the, the bold, stark fact of the matter is that Australia does help Australians first, first and foremost. So less than one cent out of of every dollar of federal spending goes to the aid budget. More than 99 cents out of every dollar of federal spending is devoted to taking care of Australians. So I don't think it would be so hard uh, or involve far too much sacrifice for Australia to try and help the world, the rest of the world, just a little bit more. I imagine that's a sentiment that would be shared by a lot of our sector. I guess going into this aid review sort of raises questions around, well, if it's not going to increase, where are we having expenditure where perhaps we don't need to? And what could we move that towards? And one of the things that comes to mind for me is the quite extensive spending on infrastructure, where it's possible that a donor or other multilateral may be able to come in and fund that, and we could instead fund more technical programs. Where do you sit on that? And is there a particular area of our aid spending that could be reallocated? No, I don't have any hard and fast preferences for particular sectors, although I do like um, the way you're thinking about it there. I mean, look at what other people are doing. Look at what's needed and then look at where you can fit in. That would be my advice. And I personally don't think any one sector, economic development, 
health education is any better than any others, but I can th I do think that uh, there are intelligent ways of choosing between different sectors and different types of spending, which uh, aren't always been adopted. Now, finally, you are a prolific blogger. Uh, I read a lot of your blogs. And one of your blogs that caught my attention recently was how politics keeps the Solomon Islands and PNG poor and poorly governed. To return to kind of finish on the Pacific theme, because I am interested in your observations on the, the, the Pacific context generally, but specifically PNG and the Solomon Islands, what did you mean by that? People have long been aware that uh, governance in countries such as Solomon Islands and uh, Papua New Guinea is poor. What I've tried to add to that discussion is to emphasise the point that poor governance stems from countries' own domestic political economies. So there were times in the past where we simply assumed that it was because people were poorly trained or that people needed to be better educated in how a government should work, things like that. And that really isn't the problem when you look at Solomon Islands and Papua New Guinea. Uh, the problem stems from the incentives generated for politicians and civil servants. And these are incentives that emerge from the country's own political economy and the nature of politics in these countries. And the problems that Solomon Islands and Papua New Guinea face aren't unique. The issues associated with the type of politics that you see in Solomon Islands and Papua New Guinea can be found in many other developing countries. And you can even find it in the histories of many OECD countries. So it's not something that's particular to the region, but it does contribute directly to poor governance. And it's really important to understand the problem as something of a, a structural issue rather than something that can just be resolved easily with a bit of technical assistance or some training. And so that's the point that I would have been emphasising. And when poor governance is a, a structural issue and a, a reasonable proportion of our aid program does go to governance-related programs, can aid programs get to the heart of the, the structural flaws that contribute to, to poor governance? Uh, and a short, the short answer is no. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't still invest aid at times in trying to improve governance because even when the political dynamics of a country are unhelpful and pull against good governance, while you can't change those dynamics yourself, you can probably find ways of helping insulate key institutions from uh, the pressures imposed upon them by dysfunctional politics and you can probably still find modest ways of improving key service delivery, uh, the institutions uh, that uh, facilitate the delivery of key services too. So it is still worth engaging, certainly. There can be small wins, but you, you sh shouldn't have too much hubris. There's no way that Australian aid is going to transform the governance of Solomon Islands, for example. And there are people in Solomon Islands who are actively engaged in the pursuit of trying to transform the governance of their country themselves right now, and I'm very optimistic that at some point in the future they will. But it's not really something that outsiders can do and certainly can't do in a mechanistic way with a few advisors and a couple of training programs and what have you. To finish, uh, as we said, you're presenting papers both tomorrow and the next day, so you do have some papers being released at the moment, um, as well as the blogs that you write and other publications that you're involved in. So if our listeners want to hear more from you, where can they go? So, yeah, simple starting point, the, the Development Policy Centre's blog, devpolicy.org, and then you can go to the contributor page and search on my name, click on the link and... Should you want to impose that sort of suffering on yourself, you can read every blog that I've ever <laughs> written. <laughs> I think that'd be a great way to spend a Saturday. All right. Thank you so much for being on the show, Terence. Okay. Thank you. 
That's it for episode 72 with Terence Wood, Research Fellow at the Development Policy Centre. I hope you enjoyed it. You'll find a link to some of Terence's recent work on the Dev Policy blog in our show notes. You may have noticed our website looks a little different. It's now easier than ever to listen to our latest episodes and access extra content on each guest. You can find it at www.goodwillhunterspodcast.com.au. Of course, we'll be back next week with a brand new episode addressing COVID-19 impacts in PNG. Until then, I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre.